Strangers, as you know, Obsessed Fest is happening in Dallas, Texas from October 20th through the 22nd. We know when it comes to equality, it's a bit of a mess in Texas right now. So while we are there for Obsessed Fest, we are going to be doing the good work. We're so excited to announce that we have partnered with two amazing organizations for whom we are going to be raising both money and awareness. One is called the Transgender Education Network of Texas, which is furthering gender diverse equality in Texas for trans and gender diverse Texans. The other is Fund Texas Choice, which provides support to Texans seeking abortion care. Both of these organizations will be participating meaningfully in Obsessed Fest. They'll be hosting panels, participating in all the fun stuff, and will even be doing a live auction at the Drag Brunch to raise even more funds for them. To learn more about the Transgender Education Network of Texas and Fun Texas Choice, go to ObsessedFest.com. We can't wait to see you all at Obsessed Fest. What would you do to be free? Would you leave the safety and security of your home to step into the margins of society just so you could live in a way that feels true to you? Would you fight every day out loud to defend your way of life? Would you put yourself in danger to protect your community? Would you sacrifice pieces of yourself for shelter and a fleeting sense of security? Some people know that being secure is worthless if you're living a lie. Some people know that they cannot rest until everyone can have safety, acceptance, and freedom. Some people are saints to those who struggle around them, to those they help, even when, it seems, they can't always help themselves. Welcome to Strange and Unexplained with me, Daisy Egan. I'm a writer and an actor who is a member of more than one community that has been discriminated against, violently subdued, actively reviled, had its humanity questioned, and been thought of as worthless. Who would I be today without the pioneers who came before me, who were willing to fight for a place in the world, and who staked a claim for the future? Before we begin, a word about language in this episode. Today, we will be covering the life and death of Marsha P. Johnson. Marsha lived in a time before there was any kind of widespread awareness or understanding about trans people. Marsha, as far as we know, didn't consider herself trans. She referred to her clothes, wigs, and makeup as drag. She did sometimes go out in public out of drag. I will be telling her story, which includes her origin story and her birth name. Furthermore, I will be referring to Marsha as she slash her, as those were the pronouns she most often used when referring to herself. However, there are some quotes from others about her that use he, him pronouns. Please try to remember that it was a different time with different sensibilities. This goes for any quotes we will be using in the episode. The language might not always be what we would say now, but we are giving historical context to how people spoke at the time. Please don't yell at my voice actors on social media. And remember that I am human. I do as much as I can to make sure I am always as respectful as possible. But like anyone, I make mistakes. Please have grace and trust that I am always trying to do better. Thank you. And with that... Here we go. On August 24, 1945, Malcolm Michaels Sr. and Alberta Michaels welcomed their fifth child into the world. They named the child Malcolm Michaels Jr. 
The Michaels lived in Elizabeth, New Jersey, where Mr. Michaels worked on the assembly line at General Motors in nearby Linden, New Jersey, and Alberta worked as a housekeeper. The Michaels eventually would have seven children. I'm going to skip ahead for a moment, if you'll bear with me. In 1963, Malcolm Jr. graduated high school and hightailed it as fast as possible to New York City and started using the name Black Marsha and eventually landed on the name Marsha P. Johnson. As I said earlier, people use different pronouns for Marsha throughout her life, but the consensus is that she, her pronouns most closely reflected Marsha's personal identity. That being said, she would sometimes joke that the middle initial P stood for pay at no mind, which was her common answer when questioned about her gender. As a child, Marsha began expressing her femininity around the age of five. Two pieces I read said that she would wear dresses, but that she was forced to stop because of bullying by other children. Her parents weren't tolerant either, so where she was wearing these dresses, I don't know. Marsha would later recall her mother telling her that being gay was lower than being a dog. At some point in her childhood, Marsha was sexually assaulted by a 13-year-old boy. So when she could, after finishing high school, she got out of there right quick. Marsha made her way to New York City with $15 and a bag of clothes. And even in New York City, the vanguard of, well, everything, it was not easy to be an out gay person. According to an obituary of Johnson in the New York Times from 2019, in New York City, quote, same-sex dancing in public was prohibited. The state liquor authority banned bars from serving gay people alcoholic beverages. People could be charged with sexual deviancy for cross-dressing. Police enforcement was often arbitrary, end quote. And just a quick side note here, 14 states are actively working to resurrect laws just like that as we speak, including Texas, Oklahoma, Tennessee, North Dakota, West Virginia, Nebraska, Florida, and South Carolina. As was, and still is, the case for out queer people, especially queer people of color who can't or won't try to blend in with, quote, polite society, it wasn't easy to find work. Marsha was a sex worker, which was, and still is, a dangerous job, especially, again, for queer people of color. In the late 70s, a cab driver shot her after paying her $20 for sex. Doctors found the bullet so close to her spine that they said if they removed it, she'd be paralyzed for the rest of her life. She opted instead to live with the immense pain of having a bullet lodged in her spine rather than be paralyzed. Marsha often found herself with nowhere to sleep, which is often a catalyst for sex work. For some, a sexual favor is a small price to pay for a relatively safe place to sleep. A piece in the Village Voice from 1979 quoted Marsha saying, I've been 86 from a lot of places. Ties, boots and saddles, the ramrod, the silver dollar, GG knickerbockers, Kellers, the limelight... So I spend most of my time on Christopher Street or under the West Side Highway. The piece describes her daily routine of getting her clothes at a locker she kept at Port Authority and using the makeup counters at department stores to make up her face. She told The Voice, It's hard work being beautiful when you don't have a place. I do my best, though. I'm trying to get my own place so I can have my wardrobe and I can set up my candles to the saints, my own altar. I haven't had my own altar in a long time. Maybe by the time of the gay pride parade, I will have an apartment so I can invite my friends up for cocktails. I 
love this quote. It is so quintessentially who Marsha was. She had been in New York City for 16 years at that point, almost exclusively on the streets, had been shot in the spine and faced God knows what danger on a daily basis. And of course, being a sex worker and poor and unhoused, she was arrested so many times, she said that after the hundredth time, she stopped counting. And yet, she was still devoutly religious and optimistic. I love that she imagined she might have a place to host Friends for Pride, which was only weeks away at the time of the interview. Speaking of Pride, Marsha's legend has grown in the last couple years as memes spread across the internet crediting Marsha with starting the uprising at Stonewall in 1969 by throwing either a brick through the window or a shot glass at the mirror behind the bar. These memes mean to serve as a reminder that the gay liberation movement wouldn't have happened without a black trans woman throwing the first brick, or shot glass. And I don't think I have to explain what the Stonewall Inn is. I'm pretty sure most people know by now, but just in case you don't, the Stonewall Inn was and is a bar on Christopher Street in Greenwich Village that opened in 1967 and at the time was owned and run by the Mafia as a private club in order to get around the state's liquor license law that said alcohol couldn't be served to gay people. And look how far we've come. Now some straight people won't drink certain liquor because gay people drink it. We did it, fellow queers. Our long game finally paid off. Anyway, as a result of all the lawbreaking going on at the Stonewall in the form of gay people being served watered-down liquor, the bar was frequently raided by police despite the fact that the mafia paid off the police to leave them alone. So the raids were mostly for show, like, Look, boss, we raided the queer bar, ain't you proud? But still, during the raids, people were arrested, which for someone like Marsha was just a regular Tuesday night. But for closeted gay men with wives back home in Scarsdale, this was a big deal. Also, the police used the raids as an excuse to sexually assault people to make sure they were wearing the correct clothing for their gender. So, back to that night in June 1969, Marsha, by her own admission, wasn't at the Stonewall Inn at the moment the uprising began. She was at a friend's apartment uptown and got to the Stonewall later that night after it was already on fire. Of course, she jumped right into the fray as soon as she got there. She was quoted in the village voice. I was in a lot of raids before. All the street queens were. The paddy wagon was a regular routine. We used to sit in our little 42nd Street hotel rooms, hot spring hotels, they used to call them, and party and get high and think about walking down the street someday and not worry about getting busted by the police. That was a dream we all had, sitting in those hotel rooms or in the Queen's tanks of the jails. So honey, when it came that night, I was ready to tip a few cars for a dream. It was that year, 1969, when I finally went out in the street and drag full time. I just said, I don't give a shit, and I've been in drag most of the time since. She was only 23 at the time. And most people do agree that regardless of who threw the first shot, as it were, at one point in the ruckus of that night, Marsha climbed up a lamppost and threw a brick in a bag through a police car windshield. She was known, in fact, to always have a brick in her purse just in case she needed it for self-defense. Or, you know, for being at the forefront of a major social revolution. 
And just because she wasn't there the moment the fracas began does not make her contribution to the movement any less important. By now, we all know that Rosa Parks didn't just up and decide not to sit in the back of the bus that day in Alabama. She was part of a movement of people who had been organizing in one way or another for years. The Stonewall Uprising was not the first event in the gay liberation movement. It was just the first really big, splashy one. And in the years leading up to it, Marsha was at the front of the line helping to push for gay liberation, despite ostracization, not just from the police and lawmakers, but from people within the very movement she was fighting for. In the immediate aftermath of the Stonewall Uprising, Marsha joined the Gay Liberation Front, an organization committed to equality for LGBT people. The GLF helped to organize the first Christopher Street Liberation Day march in 1970. To get the word out about the march, they distributed flyers that read, in part, quote, What it will all come to, no one can tell. It is our hope that the day will come when homosexuals will be an integral part of society, being treated as human beings, end quote. And that such change, quote, can only be the result of a long, hard struggle against bigotry, prejudice, persecution, exploitation, even genocide. Gay liberation is for the homosexual who stands up and fights back, end quote. The march took place on the one-year anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising and has since evolved into the annual Pride Parades, which take place all over the country and across the world. And while I can't speak to any others, I can say the parades in New York City and Los Angeles have, in recent years, been hijacked by corporations looking to rainbow-wash their reputations while handing over large contributions to politicians actively fighting to take away our freedom and liberty. The parade in New York City includes a long procession of police officers walking behind a police van. That same kind used to round up people in the raids on the Stonewall and other gay bars, covered in rainbows as though that's supposed to make it all okay. Anyway. In addition to joining the Gay Liberation Front, in 1972, Marsha helped found an organization called... And here, stranger, is where I need you to remember that this was the name they came up with and used at the time, Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR, where the GLF, though well-intentioned, favored the cis, white, middle-class demographic, the kind of person who would be taken seriously at a city council meeting, for instance, Star had a more intersectional approach and knew that if trans kids were selling themselves and dying on the streets while white gay people were sipping their cocktails at a legal bar, equity would never be achieved. Along with advocating for trans youth, Star was a shelter for gay and trans kids who were living on the streets, many of whom had been rejected by their families. Marsha was considered a kind of drag mother to these kids, giving them love and respect when they couldn't find those things anywhere else. The landlord would often turn off the electricity, but despite that, trans and gender nonconforming kids found comfort, safety, and community at Star. Marsha later recalled, I always meet these young people that don't have nobody who wants to stick by them and help them. So I help them out with like a place to stay or some food to eat or a little change for their pockets. Despite working to very literally save the lives of LGBTQIA plus youth, 
Marsha, along with her friend and star co-founder Sylvia Rivera, were barred from marching with the official Pride Parade in 1973 by the Gay and Lesbian Administrative Committee. The reason given was that the lesbians on the committee believed that, quote, drag queens were making fun of them. That cis women had fought so long to gain any kind of equality that having, quote, men dressing up as women fighting alongside them made a mockery of the fight. Undeterred, Marsha and Sylvia showed up anyway and marched in front of the parade. The footage from the rally at the end of the parade in 73 features a speech by Jean O'Leary, founder of Lesbian Feminist Liberation, deriding the so-called drag queens for impersonating and exploiting women for profit and saying they had no place in the movement. And then an impassioned speech from Sylvia Rivera recounting the horrors she had faced by police and other regular folk just for being who she was. The shots of people in the crowd booing Sylvia are pretty shameful. I shouldn't have to say this, but trans people are not imitating anyone. And anyone who had taken half a minute to talk to Marsha or Sylvia at the time would have quickly realized that. Sure, they generally referred to themselves as drag queens, but there was limited terminology. If you need any confirmation that it was Marsha that was the one being exploited, when Andy Warhol met her in 1975, he took a Polaroid of her, which he included in an exhibit called Ladies and Gentlemen. He paid her $50 to take her photo. Then he turned around and made thousands of dollars off that image. Thousands. To this day, the Warhol prints of Marsha sell for tens of thousands of dollars. Do you think any of that money went back into the community? No. It probably went into plates of cocaine at Warhol's art world parties. Anyway. Indeed, the radical sentiments of the late 60s had been tempered by the late 70s. In her interview with The Village Voice in 1979, Marsha, then 34 years old, said, Gay people aren't fighting anymore. They don't care as long as they have a bar to go to. You know that, darling. But when I came down here 10 years ago, I caught the drift the minute I walked into Sheridan Square. I said, it's about time, honey. Despite being excluded from the official club, as it were, Marsha was still a fixture in the village and the gay community. Those who actually took the time to get to know her called her a saint, a charismatic queen, and a myth. Marsha was an icon. The piece from 1979 in The Village Voice rather clumsily put it this way, quote, Johnson can turn conventional values on their head, publicly affirming his differentness, making beauty from the most unlikely materials. Marsha's camp garbage aesthetic is shared by many street transvestites, affordable democratic taste. But Marsha is an acknowledged leader. Quote, Marsha caught on like wildfire, end quote, Bob formerly Flash Storm remembers, quote, and set all these new trends in dressing. She was the abundance and beauty of the street trash. And flowers, always flowers, going after this sky-high energy with extreme makeup and colored wigs and pins and jewelry. She looked like an ornament when she was done, end quote. Marsha's transformation defies masculinity, but he is still a far cry from feminine. His outsized features protruding beneath the makeup, flamboyant clothes set on a six-foot body, muscled arms and legs. Marsha eludes gender and ends up a countercultural saint of transformation, end quote. 
She was such a fixture in the community, in fact, that some began referring to her as the mayor of Christopher Street. And even with all that street cred, Marsha was not allowed in most bars and was broke all the time. Despite Warhol's silkscreen of her selling in a gallery on Christopher Street for $1,400. Marsha may have been the mayor of Christopher Street, but she still didn't have a place to live. She'd been living in New York City for nearly two decades and had found shelter wherever she could. In her interview with The Voice, Marsha said, For the last 17 years, my life has been built around sex and gay liberation, being a drag queen and dating all the time. It can get very boring, you know, darling, all these men. Sometimes they hassle me if they thought I was a woman when they picked me up. I just say, honey, this is like Macy's department store. If you like the merchandise, you take it. If you don't, I got to go. I'd like to stop hustling and have a regular husband. It's easy to get a husband. But it's not easy to get them to support me or pay the bills or give up sex. (laughs) Because, honey, gay men don't give up sex for anything. My best husband, I met him dating. He was a junkie and he got shot in a robbery. He wasn't a very good man, but he used to give me everything. I've had eight husbands and eight separations and none of them have given me a white house and picket fence. Her life on the street not only landed her in jail more times than she could count, but included several stints in area psychiatric hospitals. She had her first breakdown in 1970 and had eight more by her own count by 1979, which is, frankly, not surprising. By 1979, Marcia had been rejected by her family, experienced almost constant homelessness, had been bullied, harassed, assaulted, shot, and both revered and reviled by her own so-called community. If she wasn't born with some mental health issues, she earned them through trauma. Of course, drugs and alcohol didn't help her mental state. It's ironic, of course, that drugs and alcohol are often used to cope with a life lived mostly on the streets and then become a huge factor in what keeps you living on the streets. In his book Stonewall, historian Martin Duberman wrote, quote, She would wander, starting off talking about one thing and end up miles away. People would say that drugs had ruined her mind, that she was a permanent space cadet, end quote. And Marsha herself said, I may be crazy, but that don't make me wrong. Amen. Add her mental health struggles to that scrappiness that's needed to survive on the streets, Marsha, the person often described as a saint, was also sometimes considered a bully by others. As a piece in The Voice put it, quote, aggression has been a necessary part of Marsha's life. It doesn't make friends on Christopher Street, end quote. Marsha told the Village Voice, This last breakdown, I was fighting with everyone. I don't like getting in those fights. But when they say you can't stay and you don't know why, when I'm having a breakdown, it seems like I meet all these weird people, all these strangers who don't understand gay people coming around. In 1980, Marsha finally landed herself a permanent place to live when a friend asked his roommate Randy Wicker if she could stay for one night in their Hoboken, New Jersey apartment to get out of the cold. Wicker told British Vogue magazine in 2020 that he was nervous about Marsha at first, but agreed to let her stay the night. That night turned into 12 years. Wicker said, That was the greatest blessing I had in life, having a roommate like Marsha. 
And just as Marsha had sheltered the LGBTQIA plus street kids and given whatever resources she might have had to others who were in need, as the HIV AIDS epidemic devastated the gay community in New York City in the 70s and 80s, Marsha was there as an activist and organizer with ACT UP, a nonprofit dedicated to ending the AIDS crisis. She was also often found at the bedside of sick friends. Marsha's friend Coco Rodriguez recalled, She tried to help through the AIDS epidemic. If you were sick, she'd sit right by you. She'd stop by and say, Hey, are you okay? Do you need something? She was helping a person survive. And then, in 1990, Marsha herself was diagnosed with HIV. In an interview from 1992, she said, They call me a legend in my own time. Because there were so many queens gone that I'm one of the few queens left from the 70s and the 80s. Wicker said even with everything Marsha had endured, and with a bullet lodged in her spine and a diagnosis of HIV, she never complained. In fact, he said, she was always there to cheer others up. He recalled, Her sense of humor could just pick you up off the floor. One day, I was depressed because a friend hadn't invited me over for Thanksgiving. She came over singing, Jesus loves me, how do I know? Because survival tells me so. I went from being totally depressed to roaring with laughter. Then, on July 6, 1992, someone walking near the Christopher Street Pier noticed a body floating in the Hudson River. When emergency personnel retrieved the body, bystanders immediately recognized Marsha. They laid her on the pavement until she could be taken off to the morgue. Marsha's friend and roommate, Randy Wicker, later recalled, As she laid there, her blood soaked into the pavement. There was Marsha's blood and everything where her body had lain on the asphalt. And as news quickly spread through the community, people brought candles and flowers to lay at the spot where her body had been. Marsha was cremated, and her ashes were spread in the Hudson River at the Christopher Street Pier, where Marsha, like many queer sex workers, had spent a lot of time. Very quickly, police ruled her death a suicide, but Marsha's community was not having it. Those who knew her said she was not suicidal. Indeed, it seems that despite all the hardships she had to endure, she remained optimistic and hopeful. No one ever heard her speak of wanting to kill herself, and she left no note. But it really was the speed and casualness with which the police handled her death that truly riled people up. Randy Wicker told Vogue, The police did nothing. Just because she was black, transgender, and a known prostitute. In the recent Netflix documentary, The Death and Life of Marsha P. Johnson, Matt Foreman, the former head of the Anti-Violence Project, said this. Marsha can't even be understood in 1992 without the context of her literally washing up on the street. I mean, lying there dead and no interest shown whatsoever in doing a damn thing about it. That summer was the worst summer ever. Anti-LGBT violence was at a peak. That year, we had 1,300 reports of bias crime. If you look at the reports there, 12 to 18% of those were based on violence perpetrated by police. 
It was going on before what happened to Marsha, and it went on for a long time. It's that whole period. We were sick to hear about this unrelenting wave of attacks, particularly given the circumstances surrounding Marsha's death. This was so common, in fact, that shortly before she died, Marsha commented on it. In home video footage released to Inside Edition after her death, Marsha said, I don't think they do a good investigation on a gay murder. They think, oh, that is one more gone. When you're gay, it takes forever. I always say tomorrow is not promised to me. In the Netflix documentary, Wicker said, Well, it certainly was not a suicide. That was insults to the family. No way could Marsha have in any way committed suicide. But let's face it, the police department had already made up their mind. This case is over. We we don't want to be bothered because this is a nobody. This isn't a person. A former bartender from the Stonewall told Inside Edition in 2019, quote, I think she was murdered. I think some straight guys dumped her in the Hudson. That's the rumor we heard, end quote. Randy Wicker told Inside Edition, I think it's probably 55% that she was murdered and 45% that she wasn't murdered. She could have walked down to that area and somebody starts harassing her again or somebody even on drugs is going after her and either she gets pushed in the water, stumbles into the water. She could have even slipped between the boards of the then dilapidated pier on a late night stroll. For those of you who are familiar with the pier today, you may be wondering how that could be possible. Before Giuliani and Bloomberg came in and turned New York City into a luxury condo hellscape, for many decades, a lot of New York City was just a regular corruption, drug, and crime hellscape. And the piers were just a collection of rotted boards that anyone could saunter onto. I remember celebrating the 4th of July with family and friends on the Christopher Street Pier, and while the view of the fireworks was unbeatable, the possibility of plummeting into the filthy water below through a massive hole or dying of tetanus if you scratched yourself on a rusty nail was very real. The 80s were a wild time. Four months later, under mounting pressure from the community and help from city council member Tom Duane, police reclassified Marsh's death from suicide to drowning from undetermined causes. Nearly 20 years after that, in 2012, Marsha's case was finally reopened thanks in large part to the unrelenting efforts of a trans activist named Mariah Lopez, who had considered Marsha's friend Sylvia Rivera to be her sole mother. Mariah and Sylvia believed that Marsha was murdered, and they weren't alone. Turns out that shortly before her death, Marsha's roommate, Randy Wicker, had pissed off some mob guys in a challenge over their leadership of the for-profit street fair that took place every year at the end of the Pride Parade. Apparently, an organization called Heritage of Pride had tried to wrest control of the fair a few years before and told Wicker they were threatened by the mob for doing so. Unbeknownst to Wicker, less than a month after Marsha died, activist Matt Foreman received an anonymous call telling him to warn Wicker that if he didn't stop, quote, what happened to Marsha will happen to him, end quote. 
A couple of people reported seeing Marsha being followed by two men around 4 a.m. on July 5th on 22nd Street heading west toward the river. Matt Foreman said the incident was reported to police. I believe the implication is that the police never followed up on that report even after Marsha turned up dead in the river one day later. Another friend was quoted in the Netflix documentary. We separated and we were going to meet back at midnight. And we were going to troll the streets back and forth. And we were going to go to the anvil, like, at the usual time, 2 or 3 a.m. But she never showed up. And then I remember I was down by the stroll, uh, the girl stroll. The queen stroll was on the left side. And on the right side was where all the boys used to do their things, the butch queens. I remember the girls had put me on point. Miss Kitty, watch out. There's a car full of guidos, you know, just driving around. And later that evening... I heard Marsha had gotten in the car. The thing is, yeah, we told her not to get in that car. And I never saw her again after that, you know? Even if it wasn't some mafia hit job, the likelihood that Marsha was the victim of a hate crime is pretty high. She was flamboyant and loud, and if she came across the wrong person, she easily could have ended up on the wrong side of their hatred. I mean, I was once making out with a boy on the Christopher Street Pier in the mid-90s, and we got called the F-word by a group of guys driving by. Just because it was a gay neighborhood didn't make it an oasis of safety. There was some question over a bruise on Marsha's head that some people believed was evidence of foul play, but a medical examiner explained that the injury likely happened after she was already dead and in the water by debris or by her head knocking against something. But he pointed out that if she was being chased and just happened to fall into the water, that would indeed be considered homicide. In other words, unless she was just taking a stroll and happened to fall in, it's likely that someone else played some part in her ending up dead in the Hudson River. In 2013, police again closed Marsha's case, leaving the manner of her death as drowning and the cause as unknown. We may never know exactly what happened that night. In the last couple years, plans have been announced for various memorials in the village and in her hometown of Elizabeth, New Jersey. And the Williamsburg Brooklyn East River State Park was renamed after Johnson and dedicated to her. It is one of the very few public monuments to any LGBTQIA person in this country. Last year, that park received a new ornamental entryway with the phrase, pay it no mind, emblazoned on it. Regardless of whether Marsha threw the first shot glass or brick at Stonewall in 1969, her impact on the community was vital. Regardless of how she died and who might have killed her, her legacy goes on and indeed grows with time. Marsha P. Johnson will forever be a hero and a reminder that often the real boots on the ground of a movement are black and brown women. A quick epilogue of sorts. This week, I got a DM from Mariah Lopez, who I mentioned in this episode as having helped to get Marsha's case reopened with Sylvia Rivera in 2012. Mariah is the executive director at STAR and has been giving the suits, including city and state officials in New York, hell for decades for LGBTQIA plus and trans rights. 
As soon as she heard the teaser for this episode, she reached out to me and the Obsessed Network. Mariah has never stopped pursuing justice for Marsha and has a bunch of information that has never been released to the public. She's been in contact with Marsha's family, as well as former ADA Warren Murray, regarding Marsha's case, as well as plans regarding the city's proposed memorials and development projects that impact not just the case, but the trans community in New York City, both the current community and transcestors whose legacy Mariah and Star are working to protect. Please join me on the SNU Instagram page on Monday, June 26th at 3 p.m. for a live chat with Mariah with important information and updates. I hope to see you there so we can learn more together. Next time on Strange and Unexplained. Losing a child can send a parent down some pretty dark paths. But what happens when there's no proof that your child is dead? When you're convinced your missing child is still out there, being subjected to untold abuses, that dark path can quickly become a slippery slope. The twisted story around the disappearance of Johnny Gosh. Strange and Unexplained is a production of the Obsess Network and is produced by Natalie Grillo and Angela Palladino. This episode was written by me, Daisy Egan, researched by Jess McKillop, and edited by Eve Kerrigan. Our sound mixing and engineering is by Jennifer Swatek. Our voice actors for this episode were Ian Field-Stewart, Crystal Simmons, and Luther Creek. We have a lot of fascinating and bizarre stories to share with you this season, but if there's a story you'd like us to cover, whether it's a well-known case or something that happened in your town that the world hasn't heard about yet, go to our website, strangeandunexplainedpod.com, and fill out the contact form. If you like our show, please help us out by rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts. If you don't like our show, feel free to leave a terrible review at Apple Podcasts slash The Verdict with Ted Cruz. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. We are at SNUPod and check out the Strange and Unexplained Facebook group to join in the conversation. <laughs>